Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy. This is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show, the makers of Sophie, a murder in West Cork, Netflix's upcoming documentary about the murder of Sophie Tuscan de Plantier. Talk to me about the sad case that has held the country in its grip since 1996. Fast and Furious 9, the first summer blockbuster is here, and Mark Ryle gives us his take on it, as well as the week's other new releases. Plus, the consumer champion himself, Connor Pope, chats to me about his favourite movie. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Farty, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I uh, got lots of contact last week after, at the end of my chat with Killian de Gascoon about his favourite movie, The Exorcist, when I said I didn't find most horrors scary, I got a barrage of correspondence telling me I was wrong and pointing out a whole list of movies that should rightly scare me. And I guess they were right because they mentioned all of you were right who, who emailed in and tweeted saying The Shining, Candyman, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. So there are certainly lots of other movies that are scary. I mentioned The Exorcist and The Omen as kind of the only two that genuinely terrified me. But there are other terrifying ones out there. I do stand corrected. But I think the point still stands in terms of the amount of horror movies made, the amount of them that are actually terrifying is still quite small. But anyway, let's move on from that, my friends. Now, in TV, I was watching this. A woman whose body has been found in a remote area in County Cork. The brutal murder of Sophie Tuscan du Plantier has shocked the public. She was a French lady. They were the last person spoke to her, except whoever saw her after me. Sophie du Plantier was among the social elite in Paris. For her, West Cork was a place to reflect. The region's first murder in living memory. We had no experience of serious crime. I was trying to think of neighbours and work out motives. We were afraid there was a murderer among us. No witness and no DNA. All we had was circumstantial evidence. That is a clip from Sophie, A Murder in West Cork. And that's Netflix's new documentary series, a three-parter, all about the much-talked-about murder of Sophie Toscan de Plantier. And it's going to be on Netflix from next Wednesday. Now, you may be aware that there's a whole other documentary that landed on Sunday on Sky Crime, Jim Sheridan's Murder at the Cottage, The Search for Justice for Sophie. We'll talk about that in, in a little bit, but I want to talk to you about the new Netflix documentary because I'm, you're about to hear from the makers of it. Now, this three-parter is all about this case, which, you know, has gripped the Irish imagination on and off for years. And I suppose since 1996, to be precise, since the brutal murder of Sophie, you probably well aware no one has been found guilty of it. The journalist Dean Bailey has been found guilty of it in France. His extradition has been sought. That has never happened. Some people question how objective that inquiry in France was. In this documentary, the makers have incredible access to the victim's family, to people who knew Sophie, to the residents of Skull and West Cork, where she lived or where she had this holiday home. They also interview Ian Bailey in it as well. And I suppose it really relives the case in its entirety quite succinctly over just slightly over three hours it comes in at. So it's almost watchable in a night. It's a really well put together documentary. This is a case that if you're Irish and you're of my vintage, you you kind of grew up with and you know a lot of it, but to see it all again writ large and maybe see some other bits you're not aware of, this documentary comes together as an engrossing piece of TV, but also I think does keep front and centre the fact that Sophie Tuscan de Plantier was murdered and that is the great tragedy, and also the fact that no one ever has been found guilty of that. It was directed by John Dower, who previously made a movie with Louis Theroux, my Scientology movie, and produced by Sarah Lambert. And I spoke to both of them earlier in the week. John, 
if I could start with you, I was kind of amazed by how many people you got involved. You got everyone from obviously Ian Bailey, Sophie's mother, uh, Irish Times journalist, investigating journalist of the actual case. I mean, the only person who didn't seem to be there was Marie Farrell. How did you convince or persuade everyone to be involved? Because everyone who's everyone is in the film. Well, it's a well. It was a it was a sort of team effort. I mean, I I first came on board. I'd made a film with Simon Chin, the exec producer, um, before a very different sort of film called My Scientology Movie with uh, Louis Theroux. Louis Theroux, um, who actually told me about the story. I wasn't aware of it. And um, Simon and I started chatting about it, and it took a year for it actually to happen through a whole load of boring reasons, which I won't go into. One being that, although the key one is that it was a desire to have the victim, Sophie's family, involved mm -hmm. in the filmmaking. That was very important because so often in these true crime series, the victim gets a passing mention. And, you know, what Sophie's family have done over the 25 years is pretty extraordinary. So we sort of waited for that to fall in place. And then Sarah came on board. And then it was a case of what you do in documentaries is you you go and meet people and you sit down in front of them and say this is what we're doing and we want you to be part of it and we did i mean we there was a moment when we did have marie farrell in fact there was two or three moments where we had marie farrell but there were several yeah i mean i think i think people in ireland who know this story will probably know that marie farrell has a tendency to change her mind so yes yes we, we experienced that ourselves so yeah. yeah okay fair enough and sarah i'm uh I can't remember what age I was there, 45. So I grew up with this, like a lot of yeah. Irish people. But, you know, I was still shocked by a lot of it. And I'm in the vague news business. You know, I, I've been a journalist for the last 15, 20 years or so. And I was shocked by some of the stuff, even though I'd known most of it. Was part of the motivation just to almost reframe this bizarre, haunting story in a way? I think so. I mean, I have to say, I grew up with this story as well. I mean, I'm 36, so I was 11 when Sophie was killed. But I remember, mm. you know, as we both know, there was so much coverage in Ireland over the years. It was always in the news. Um, and what I found really interesting, coming back to the case as an adult, I think your perspective is different, but also so much happens, but it actually happens over quite a long period of time. Do you mm. know what I mean? There's like years yeah. between trials and things like that. But when you see it condensed into three hours or just under three hours three episodes that's when you really think oh you know what has happened the amount mm. of things that have gone on and the twists and turns it really is pretty mind-blowing yeah and john one of the things that is very intriguing about the movie and we realize that we've known so little about sophie in a way because we've been rightly obsessed about finding who the killer is but you paint her as this kind of intriguing woman uh who had this dark side and I don't mean dark as in other people who have dark motivations but you know she was fascinated by you know the dark side of life as well as being this bright sunny character at times as well and and the way her family describe her were you really keen to paint her as you know I suppose a composite woman and give her an actual personality which is often missing from the reportage definitely I mean I'm keen to do that in all my films I mean I think you know th there's a key moment in in one of the episodes I won't say which in which one of the characters who knew of Sophie but didn't know her talks about how in true crime friction you know the murdered woman becomes an absolute cliche um you know yeah. blonde beautiful now Sophie was blonde and beautiful but she was like all of us incredibly complicated and I think it was important to show that yeah. side of her you know she had a turbulent marriage she had some you know um you know pretty turbulent relationships in the past and there's this contradiction in her between being married to a very big French film producer mm -hmm. and I don't think people outside of France just get how big he was you know you see archive of him in the film with you know Jack Nicholson and Sean Penn and you know and the French president as well exactly yeah. exactly so she there was this contradiction between her you know being in the limelight but wanting this solitude and being in love with this 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 mm. cottage in West Cork so yeah we it was it was key to 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 paint that picture of her and fortunately her family you know they they back that up you know yeah. I think it makes it a more interesting and richer film 
And talking of painting people in the full palette, you know, we get to Ian Bailey. Uh, one of the things, and you know, we, I, you probably know more about it than I do, but one has to be careful what one says. Uh, and he's quite well known for taking issue with things that have been said about him by people like me or people like you. But one of the things that came across was that he was kind of a pub bore. Uh, and he reminded me of people from college, like the picture you paint is like he would come into a pub and start reciting this god awful poetry. Uh, was that your sense from Sarah or John that he was a bit of an ass, like outside of everything? We'll get to other things he did, but he didn't warm a room. It was the opposite. I mean, I think it's funny, you know, <laughs> Ian Bailey, one of his main complaints is that was anti-English sentiment against him in Ireland. Um, I, I don't think it was anti -English. I mean, I'm English, but I wouldn't stand up on a table in Ireland and recite terrible <laughs> poetry like that. I mean, I think he was a very imposing character and a difficult character for a lot of people. Uh, uh, you know, a really difficult character. Mm -hmm. And, you know, both of us have met Ian several times and he can be charming and conversely he can be um a difficult character yeah. <laughs> I mean, I there's a lot good. of there's a lot of shades to ian bailey i think is fair to say and i also think he inspires like a very strong feeling in people so there's people in the series friends of his a journalist an actress who you know i think he's great and then there's people that like you said considered him to be like a pub bore there is one woman that mentions that, you know, someone with a personality like Ian's wouldn't be at a place, you know, in the King's Road in London. But when you take a, a big personality like Ian's and you put them within a small community, I think it magnifies all of those things that we've just talked about. Yeah. Sarah, on that, and, you know, this is maybe cards on the table time, but I presume as, you know, documentary makers, you're as best you can being objective and you're yeah. presenting the facts as you see them. Do you think your movie is objective or does it come down on one side or the other in terms of the guilt of Ian, ba Ian Bailey? Because I, I think maybe it does. Do you know, I really strongly feel that as filmmakers, I don't want to like influence what anyone draws from this. So I think we presented information on both sides. And what I would actually like to see is that different people come away with different opinions at the end. Um, because I think the idea is, yeah, as a filmmaker, you're a conduit and you present the information and then people will take from that what they will. And I think the interesting thing about this case is whether it's to do with this series or the investigation in general, you can present people the exact same information. And some people will very firmly think that, you know, Ian Bailey is guilty and some people will very passionately think that he's innocent. And that's one of the things I think that drew us into this. It draws this strong opinion from people. But also, no, there's a bit of a myth about documentaries being objective. We all, we'd all love that to be the case, but they're not. No story, any story you tell has a point of view. That's Absolutely. Just, that's mm. just life, you know. Yeah. You, you sit in a pub and tell someone a story, it, it has a point of view. We try to lay out as, in a, you know, in as nuanced and complex way because it is such a complicated story. Mm. But ultimately, we do begin to take a point of view. And I mean, my personal point of view is irrelevant to the film. Mm. And, and, and so is Sarah's. And so is all the other people that work on it. But the bottom line remains, and this is why this story is, is still around, is that Ian Bailey has failed to answer some contradictions in his story. And those mm -hmm. contradictions still remain. Yeah. I mean, for instance, you know, people who don't know the story when they come to see the film, for me, the bonfire, and I'll leave it at that. Mm. But, you know, he's never given a credible answer to that. And he avoids talking about that. So I'm afraid that, yeah, I mean, he's 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 not been proven guilty in... In, in uh, Ireland. In Ireland. He has been in France. And again, you, you can take issue with the way in which he's been found guilty. Mm -hmm. And I think we do, we give voice to those who do take issue. But ultimately, I mean, I think one of the unique things about the story, for me, is that it's, it's a story in which a journalist is covering a murder in which he becomes the prime suspect. Yeah. And yet, he clearly enjoys being the prime suspect. I mean, people in Ireland who followed the story will know that. He can't stay away from this story. 
And that, I think, doesn't help him and actually makes him, for me, slightly more sinister than a pub ball. Yeah, yeah. For, for people who don't know, he's he's a stringer in, in Cork at the time of the case and he's feeding copy into Irish newspapers all about the case. Mm-hmm. And I mean, either of you can answer this, whoever wants to. Has Ian seen the movie and what has his response been? Well, he hasn't seen it. Um, he has not. I know that he's done. A, he did an interview last week saying um, that he felt it was a, a demonization piece. I think he called it, but he hasn't seen it. So that would be Ian's assumption as opposed to anything based on his own viewing. Okay. Okay. Listen, I mean, obviously everyone's aware there's another film being made about Ian and which I've got no issue with that, you know, there's, you know, in this, in this so-called documentary gold rush, this is going to happen over and over again. When I made my film about Scientology, there was, you know, the great American director, Alex Gibney was making series about, so it was fine. Normally we would show films to contributors, but we, again, which again shows us a particular quirk of Ian Bailey is Mm. we, we had an interview with him and then he decided to sign an exclusive contract with the other film being made, which for me is quite telling in itself that, that a, a man who's still a, a murder suspect would sign an exclusive contract. It's, yeah. it's a bit odd, but, uh, yeah. but, so but that's, he's, but, that's but where just, we are with Ian. Okay, fair enough. But I should tell listeners, Ian is interviewed in this movie many times. So he yeah. signed this deal with, and obviously we're talking about the Jim Sheridan movie, yeah. With with Jim Sheridan after your film was made, or no? After the after the initial interview we did with him, okay. And then he did do some Ian being Ian couldn't resist it. He did do some filming with us late on in 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 um, the market in, okay. in Marine. So yeah, yeah, he is a he is a. But there became a point where he stopped talking to us about the story. Okay, and just on that, you know, one of the many bits in the movie that is deeply unsettling is when Ian Bailey is asked about his domestic abuse with his partner, Jules, and, you know, the obfuscation, and, you know, he mentions two to tango. It's quite sickening at times. Uh, I'm just wondering, you know, how was that to be in the room with him when when you asked him about that? Um, (laughs) I mean, I think, I I don't want to get into the, you know, domestic violence, and I don't want to make a thing about that because we're, you know, we're very, we present it, and we try and present it in, as as carefully as possible. It's a, it's a difficult moment mm. in in the film because, you know, Jules, who doesn't do many interviews, she, you know, despite, you know, she has a right to privacy over that. Um, over that. Well, that's true, yeah. Yeah, and it's, you know, Ian talks about it. I mean, all I'd say about it is that Ian talks, Ian's created this narrative about it, which is, you know, uh, you know, I think you'd agree, Sarah, you know, he, he talked, you know, he, we took this moment out of the film, but he sort of name checks, you know, Richard Burton and Elizabeth Taylor. And I feel that, yeah. you know, given the level and of incidents and, and, and violence, it's, you know, it's not a great line. No, but, abs- you know, absolutely not. We we include it, and and of course, as someone else to say, you know, it doesn't necessarily make him guilty, but it no, no. added to a, a a series of other, you know, facts. It it you know, it, you can see why he was the and remains the prime suspect. Yeah, as I think Laura Morrow says the bouquet of of facts. Mm. Uh, Sarah, then I suppose you know. On the side of the angels, one thing I was struck by was Sophie's son. Uh, and he comes across, you know, as a man who's who's weathered the storm. He's been he's been deeply affected by it. And how, how could he not be? But he, he shows tremendous grace in a way when he addresses, uh, you know, a congregation in school and, and basically says, we don't want Ireland to be blamed for this. This is about mm-hmm. one person. He, he really, in a way, if, if there can be a hero of the piece in something as tragic as this, he kind of comes across as, as a wonderful guy in this and the hero of the piece, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think Pierre-Louis was really young. You know, he was mm-hmm. in his mid-teens when this happened. And I think 
he would say himself for those early years he didn't get involved in the media the press he was very protected by his grandparents in particular um but as they have gotten older and it's been more difficult for them to travel to Ireland and, and sort of keep the awareness going he has really stepped in I think he has yeah an admirable admirable um determination to to get justice for his mother yeah yeah well it is a very well-made piece of tv so uh the best of luck with it as i say it's a real fitting tribute to sophie thanks a lot for talking to me guys thank you Yes, director John Dower and producer Sarah Lambert, the producer and director of Sophie, A Murder in West Cork, available next Wednesday, the 30th of June on Netflix. Now, I mentioned earlier, and you heard John even talk about it, Jim Sheridan has done a documentary about the same case, uh, Murder at the Cottage, The Search for Justice for Sophie. It's similar in lots of ways in that they interview a lot of the same people, a lot of the same contributors. They have more access to Ian Bailey, as you heard there, because halfway through he signed an exclusive deal. They also speak to Jules, his former partner. What I found unusual about it wasn't, and what I wasn't expecting in the Jim Sheridan one, is that Jim Sheridan is very much in it. And he's almost like a not just the narrator, but he's there interviewing people and he's front and center. That's not a criticism, but I I just was surprised. He's usually a behind the cameraman. I think in some ways it's different to the Netflix one in that it, it maybe casts more of a doubt on some of the findings by the police and, and maybe the legal process. It is well worth a watch as well. So that's Murder at the Cottage, the search for justice for Sophie, which is on Sky Crime. And as I say, the Netflix Sophie documentary, Sophie, a murder in West Cork, is available to stream on Netflix from next Wednesday, the 30th of June. Up next, Mark Ryle on the week's new releases. Screen Time on News Talk. Now, welcome back to Screen Time News Talk's TV and movie show. It's new release time and the big new release of the week, and I guess the first bona fide blockbuster of this strangest of years has arrived a Fast and Furious 9. Y'all ever thought about the wild missions we've been on? We've taken out planes, trains, tanks. I'm not going to even think about the submarines. And now we got cars flying in the air? Who is he? Jacob is Dom's brother. Been a long time, Dom. Little brother. You always say never turn your back on family. But you turned your back on me. Now your little family is in my world. Yes, a clip there from Fast and Furious 9. It's the big new release of the week and we'll be looking at it and another very different movie called Supernova, which we talked about with the director last week. And I'm joined now by our resident critic, Mark Ryle. He was away last week. His deeply held pagan beliefs mean he refuses to work the week leading up to the summer equinox, but that has passed. So he's back in effect. Hello, Mark. Thank you, John. Listen, uh, Fast and Furious 9, we were talking during Uh, the week. I said I'd never seen any of these. I was actually wrong. I've seen the first one, right? but I'm certainly not a devotee, as in I haven't seen a load of them. Are you a Fast and Furious devotee? Uh, This was the first, this is the first pleasure that I had with the Fast and the Furious. I think through a combination of like self-preservation on certain (laughs) fronts, I've managed to avoid every single one of these up until now. Um, but I, I, you know, I, I kind of got the gist. Yes, indeed. Well, well, tell our listeners what's going on in Fast and Furious Nine. Do you want to try? I mean, I don't know where to begin. And I suppose that basically, Vin Diesel is Dominic Toretto, and John Cena is his evil brother Jacob, mm-hmm. and Jacob has stolen John the, Cena, the wrestler we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Uh, he has stolen um, the most generic MacGuffin in living memory. <laughs> And uh, Dominic drives after him in many cars, and that is pretty much it. I think, uh, to be honest, you'd find more plot in a in a in a New Year's Eve fireworks display. <laughs> yes, the plot is quite thin. It does also involve superpowered magnets, a bit of a trip to space. Uh, Charlize Theron being quite literally a villain in a box uh, and a glass box for some no discernible reason. She's in this box dishing out orders. 
Uh, yeah, I think she was. Yeah, she's a day player Her, herself, and Helen Mirren, I think, are on screen for a, just a, a long enough to warrant being in the trailer. And really, that's all that's needed to sell this. I think a trailer and a poster. These movies have taken in six point eight billion at the box office so far. Largest so they, franchise in Universal's history. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. They just they every two years they 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 churned out and they're they're eating up with a spoon. And for the life of me. <laughs> I can't work out why. So this didn't please you in any way, I'm sensing? It didn't. No, it no, really didn't. I mean, it, it lived up to my expectations. Apart from, I was expecting a lot more, you know, bald bodybuilders dry humping these those vulgar supercars <laughs> that you see Russian <laughs> oligarchs driving around in. But I mean, I suppose there was, there was plenty of that stuff in, in the other eight movies. Um, what is remarkable, though, is the the way that they managed to shoehorn a car chase into the most implausible of situations. No matter no matter what the problem is, it can be solved through the the medium of a car chase. If it's you know if you just find out that your brother killed your father, have a car chase. Or you know if a Baltic dictator steals a satellite super weapon, have a car chase. Everything is is solved with a car chase. <laughs> okay, well here's where I'm going to disagree with you to an extent first thing well no i agree with you that the plot is just preposterous and from what i know of the other movies bears huge similarities to the other things and the idea of vin diesel's evil brother showing up was just nonsense and the stuff about giant super magnets and then going to space and you know was absurd i thought the acting was terrible i mean vin diesel at times it's 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 like I said earlier in the week, it's like that guy from the BBC who showed up for a job interview and then they put him live on air and he just exactly. looked completely confused. Exactly. It was completely like that. That said, right, and we have to bear in mind how successful these movies are. The reason why they're so successful, I think, is that the action is unrelenting. And I did find some of the action sequences entertaining. Like there's one in particular where they're racing across a minefield in cars and helicopters, trying to avoid the mines and sometimes not avoiding the mines. And it, you know, it, 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 it entertained me. It thrilled me momentarily. So I get the appeal. It's not for me. I think it was terribly acted, but I can see why they're so popular for certain people. Yeah. You, you never cease to amaze me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not saying I love this or I no, thought it no. was great or anything. First of all, that's not how minds work. Um, <laughs> also, I think at one point, didn't John seen a zip line from Edinburgh to London? I mean, <laughs> I'm not. Gonna yeah, there start, was a preposterous zip line. Yeah, I'm not going to start picking holes in this. The problem, like, I th- you, okay, the action, uh, it's it's uniformly ridiculous, and. Not only does it not have the flimsiest grasp, grasp on reality, but it, it's completely unburdened by, by physics or gravity. And the problem with having these incredulous action sequences that become progressively more incredulous is that you're really left with nowhere to go. Um, I think Mission Impossible would be a comparable. I think we both picked the last Mission Impossible uh, as our uh, best of the year. I think it was was it 2018-ish. Um, one of think, the best of the year, yeah. Yeah, one of the best yeah. of the year. But I think w- the pr- the difference is that uh, when you're watching a, a Mission Impossible movie, you're aware that you know Tom Cruise hanging off the side of a plane is daft, but you don't think it's dumb, and it's that wasn't done in a way that insults its audience. Mm. And this could not care less about its audience. And um, the first big action sequence like that you were talking about earlier, it's set in the Colombian jungle, which somehow has a road running right through it. <laughs> Um, yes, I did think that was odd. It is. Yeah, who knew? Um, but I'm not exaggerating. It looks like a, a roadrunner, roadrunner cartoon and, you know, Wiley Coyote running off a cliff and hanging there for a second and breaking the fourth wall before he drops. Uh, it, it, and it, like a live action cartoon, there is no sense of peril um, or that the danger mm. that the characters are, are put in have any consequences at all. So eventually after like five of these you're just left sitting there thinking so what yeah i i think i I really do feel sorry for the stuntmen and women who who worked on this because it it, i think it's a waste of good stunt work yeah so are you saying that you're all fine with dumb action but this is just too dumb to be plausible or entertaining i think it barely even tries Um, Mm. it's so uniform it's it's the other thing is it's broken up into these these self-contained blocks 
that kind of repeat themselves every 20 minutes or so. Yeah. And they, they, the blocks are, you know, there's an establishing drone shot of somewhere like Edinburgh or Tbilisi or Colombia. And then it moves to this soundstage set of a secret underground lair and Vin Diesel and Michelle Rodriguez squint intensely at each other and say things like he was my brother, she was my sister, or he was my second cousin by marriage. And then there's a car chase. And that is repeated literally every 20 minutes. And it is quite remarkable. I, I got I got the impression that you could probably take out one of these blocks and just stick it into one of the other eight yeah. movies. And it probably would not have made the slightest difference. Yeah, I know what you're saying. You you make it you make a good point and you explain it like that well. Uh so yeah, I, I yeah, I, I, I guess I agree with you when you put it like that. I, I mean I didn't find the action as dumb as that, or maybe I'm dumb enough to appreciate it. I don't know, but I certainly see what you're saying. And it is the type of movie that if you were to go up and get a Coke and an extended bathroom break and you came back in, it would make no discernible difference whatsoever. Because the other thing you say as well is well made that your point is well made. They never seem, even though they're in a constant state of danger, hmm. never actually feel anything's going to happen to them. No. I mean, and they I, even make a joke of being invincible at one point during it. There is that running joke, but I mean, that's the, but did Vin Diesel look like he was flying at one stage? I mean, yeah, I really I had to. <laughs> yeah. There's a different, like, there's no problem with what leaving your brain at the door, but eventually you have to put it back in and you're really yes. going to hate yourself in the morning. <laughs> What would you say stars wise? Look, there's undoubtedly a massive audience for this, but that doesn't mean that it's right. Um, I'm going to give it a one because it's absolute codswallop. In deference to that audience who are eating it up in their millions, I'm going to give it a two. That is Fast and Furious 9. If you like the other, this is actually the 10th, uh, edition of it despite Including the numbers spin-offs, yeah. yes so if you like those I think you'll probably like this uh, if you didn't you certainly won't Mark's giving it a 1 I'm giving it a 2 Fast and Furious 9 in cinemas from Thursday the 24th of June so if you're listening to this show at any stage it's in the cinema but me and Mark are saying probably don't bother getting down there but they are review proof I mean Absolutely. no one is not going don't, to see it if you know what I mean second listen to me at all <laughs> that's the spirit howling, now, howling into the void john no no but with the way you howl that's what it's all about you know mark commode once gave me this brilliant statistic that according to a YouGov poll he was the most recognized film critic uh-huh. in british society but the yeah. same YouGov poll found that three and a half percent of the population actually listened to what film critics said so go figure Absolutely. now Something I think we're going to agree more on is Supernova. I dis- I discussed this for a long time with the director last week, so we don't have to spend ages on it, but I am curious to know what you thought about what I thought was a very touching movie with Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth. It is. It's 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 lovely. Um, yeah, Stanley Tucci and Colin Firth, they're a long-time couple, Tusker and Sam, and one is an author and the other one is a concert pianist. And Tusker has been diagnosed with early onset dementia and uh, the couple are taking a road trip around, I think, the Lake District in a camper van um, before Tusker's health deteriorates to the point where he will no longer recognize his partner's face. And the climax of this this road trip is Sam performing his first piano recital since his partner became ill. Mm. And the chemistry between the two of them, I know they're friends in real life, but in yeah, this they yeah. are playing a, a, a romantic couple and, and mm. lovers for a long time. I thought it was just wonderful. It, it was so believable that they'd been together. It's fantastic, yeah. I mean, Tusker and Sam, they, they feel, I suppose the best way I could say it is that they feel like a lived-in couple. And mm. it's a pleasant relief to to see a long-term on-screen couple who aren't tearing strips off each other. yeah. There's an enormous amount of love and affection um, in this, I suppose, aged relationship. And I found that very, very refreshing. And you also get the sense that there was a history to their relationship as well, yes. that, that they didn't just appear out of the script. There's a real there's a real depth to the characters. And obviously, you know, Tucci and, and Further, they're, they're phenomenal in this. And, you know, I, I mentioned this last week, but say in 
comparison to a movie like The Father, Father we talked yeah, about yeah. a couple of weeks ago, where Anthony Hopkins is in the throes of of this terrible dementia that's yeah. afflicting him. Uh, Colin or Stanley Tucci's character Tusker, it, you're just getting little intimations of it. Almost, he's he's at the other side of it. it it's ahead of him, and the way they're standing in front of that ensuing void together trying to stare into the wind or the eye of the storm before it comes to pass was just brilliantly done. Yeah, I mean, I suppose comparisons are going to be unavoidable with The Father. I think that's still in cinemas at the moment. Mm. Um, I think what The Father does, though, it shows the depths of dementia, um, but uh, Tucci's character is, is at a different stage. Mm. And I suppose you could say the supernova is the prologue. Um, yeah. The one thing on, on Tucci's character in this, I mean, I know it's a movie, um, but apart from a few key scenes that show the extent of uh, Tusker's condition, he's still in control of his faculties yes. during the important moments that really mm. matter to the story. And life isn't like that, but I, that's why we watch movies. You know, we watch them to escape. And it is a, an incredibly movie, moving story. Um, th- 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 you're, you're drawn to, to Tucci because, partly because we know what he's going through and what lies ahead of him. So that's where our sympathy and our empathy goes. But it's also because uh, Tusker is the more outgoing of the pair. He's got more personality. But I think as the more reserved, I think Firth has the harder role somewhat Mm. because, um, you know, you're watching the key line in Supernova is, uh, you know, you're not supposed to mourn someone while they're still alive, which is what um, Firth is doing. And yeah. you, you, it's one of those movies where you find yourself putting yourself in into a what if situation, you know, Absolutely. What, if, what if I was going through this or what if my partner was going through this? I mean, it's it's powerful stuff, but it, 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 bizarrely, it's very, very sweet as well. Yeah. And there's a lightness of touch at times and there, you know, it's a road movie at times as well. I, I, I guess mm. it's bittersweet. And you're right. It throws up that question of, you know, your lover becoming your carer and, yeah. and and vice versa and it, and it does it brilliantly yeah well i'm glad you found it uh, in such high or you held it in such high esteem as i did what would you say stars wise for supernova um i'm going to give it a 4 very good i'm going to give it a 4 as well i know it's for some reason whenever i say it last week i develop a boston accent and call it supernova for some strange reason it's supernova just to clarify and it is in cinemas from this friday and mark is giving it a 4 and so am i mark thank you for that talk next week thanks john up next connor pope on his favorite movie screen time on news talk Now you're listening to Screen Time News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite movie. Connor Pope, I guess you would say, is is a crusader for consumerists. He is the Superman of the supermarket shelf. I'm falling all over my words here. Connor Pope, how are you? You made that really difficult for yourself, John. I'm not going to lie to you. I certainly you, did. You I've been rehearsing it for days. You could have just said, I'm joined by Connor Pope of the Irish Times or whatever, and that would have got you through it. I know, I know, but I had to think big. It's terrible. Uh, It'll true. be my downfall. Nice to talk to you. Always Thanks for doing this. Thanks a lot. You, your favourite movie is a humdinger. Will you, will you tell our listeners what you've opted for? Well, it was a tough choice because I know. for the last decade or so, I've been immersed in the world of Pixar and kids' movies because I have three three girls under the age of 13. So I've probably seen the likes of Frozen or Tangled more than I've seen any other film in the course <laughs> of my life. But I deliberately didn't pick those. So I went for a film that I, I've loved for almost a quarter of a century. Uh, and it's one of the Coen brothers finest works and it's the big Lebowski perhaps an obvious choice but I still love it no no now we've discussed that movie on this show once or twice but never in this slot so it's fine now the thing is I have to be careful here because we could go down a Lebowski rabbit hole (laughs) because I adore it right and it almost sounds like you know tell me why water is wet but would you just tell listeners maybe just a tiny bit top line what it's about and why you love it Well, I suppose talking about the plot seems kind of redundant because the plot is so convoluted Mm. and it's so all over the shop that it almost becomes irrelevant. Um, But basically, it's a slacker film, a a film about a stoner called The Dude (laughs) or The Dude Arino. If you're not into the whole brevity thing. If you're not into the whole brevity (laughs) thing. Uh, And he finds his house is broken into, um, his rug is stolen. 
uh, or sorry, his rug is peed upon, excuse mm -hmm. me, yeah. um, because the people, the, 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 the Germans who broke into his house think he's a, another Lebowski, but he's actually a, 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 a different Lebowski. And as a result of that, he, he loses his rug. So then he goes to the other Lebowski, who's the big Lebowski, to try and get recompense. Then he steals the rug from uh, the big Lebowski. And then the film kind of unravels from there. There's a kidnapping. There's uh, bowling. There's a lot of bowling. Yeah. Uh, there's, as I say, just some German nihilists. Uh, there's a, a, a pornography. There's a, a severed toe. And it all just ties together. It all yes. just cut, stitches together. So it's extremely, extremely odd. But basically, so if you th the nihilist goons beat up the dude. They threaten to cut off his Johnson. That's the word they use. They pee on his rug. So then he goes to the other Lebowski, who's a crippled millionaire, who's got a young trophy wife called trophy wife called Bunny. Mm. Uh, then Bunny disappears. There's a whole kid kidnapping saga. And then, of course, the whole thing is just made even more insane by the presence of a character called Walter. Now, yeah. Walter is a, a Vietnam vet who's uh, uh, really into his bowling really into his guns, really into shouting at a poor, unfortunate character called Donnie, who's played by Steve Buscemi. Um, and the nice thing about it is that now you can drop into it at any moment of the film, the yeah. beginning, the middle or the end. And it feels like slipping on a comfortable uh, dressing gown and a nice pair of shorts and maybe a pair of flip flops. Uh, and just you can just zone out. And it's just a wonderful movie. And it has that thing where that comes on the TV, no matter what points it's at, you kind of not doing anything for the next, however long it's on for, you know? That's exactly right. And what you'll do is you'll say, oh, I'll just watch the next five minutes. Um, and then before you know it, 90 minutes has passed and you just yeah. get sucked into it. And it, it, it's like, in a way, it's, it's, very, it's very much of its time because it was set in the early 1990s and it was released in 1998. And I have to say it was released without any, without any great acclaim. Yeah. It had come just after Fargo. And as your listeners will know, Fargo had been just so critically acclaimed and it had won the big Oscars. And it was just like, it was, it was the Coen Brothers' big breakthrough film, really. Um, not necessarily their best film, but the, the big breakthrough film. And when, when, when The Big Lebowski came out, all of these people who had loved Fargo were like, sorry, what? what what's yeah. this? Because, it, but it was very typical Coen Brothers. And it's like, in, 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 it comes from the same kind of vein as Barton Fink or, or, mm. or, or lots of their other movies. They're just, they're so peculiar, but they're like a combination of idiosyncratic and heartwarming and, and sometimes hilariously funny. Yeah, that's brilliantly described. And just, we have to mention though, the dude himself, Jeff Bridges. I mean, he's just a work of delight, isn't it? In his bathrobe and his white Russians. <laughs> Do you know what? And the thing is, like Jeff Bridges wasn't really, like the, the Coen brothers wrote two of the characters for two specific people. So mm. they wrote Donnie for Steve Buscemi and they wrote Walter for John Goodman. They didn't really have an idea who was going to play the dude. Um, but looking back on it now through the prism of, of the passage of time, you can't imagine anybody playing the dude other than Jeff Bridges because he is just so perfect for it. He is the ultimate stoner. He just wants to listen to his credence. He just mm. wants to get his car back because, that, of course, that's, an, that's another very important plot line. The dude's car, it just, yeah. it just goes through so much torment all uh, the way through it. Um, like the car gets stolen. And one of the one of the great scenes in the film is when like the, the car, to, without spoiling it for anybody who hasn't seen it. And if you haven't seen it, you're really in for a treat. But like the car gets stolen with a, what he thinks is a suitcase full of money in it. So obviously he's really concerned. Um, and the car, the car gets stolen. And he asks the police officer, uh, do you have any leads? <laughs> And the way the police officer responds to the, uh, the dude's question about whether there are are there are 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 any leads on his really battered, broken car, but of course then one of the big big scenes in it is and and uh, is when um the car gets stolen, the money disappears, uh, some homework is found, okay, mm -hmm. and so Walter, who's the Nam vet. Uh, bowling, bowling King uh, and the big Lebowski or, or sorry the dude uh, go to Larry's house uh, and Larry's a schoolboy and he's just written an essay on the Louisiana Purchase which by the way you can actually read if you're so inclined <laughs> uh, and uh, 
there's just this, this scene unfolds when Walter loses the, loses the plot entirely with this poor child. Then he runs out to the front and he smashes up the sports car that he, <laughs> that he thinks Larry, the school kid, has bought with the money. And then the guy who actually owns the sports car, who happens to be the neighbour of Larry, comes out and then he he trashes the dude's car. And yeah. like, as I say, when I'm explaining it, I'm, I'm thinking that makes absolutely no sense. And your listeners are going to be going, I think that guy might be on drugs, which, of course, obviously the the dude is. Um, yeah. but, but and then just the, 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 the presence of John Turturro, who, of course, plays a, a bowling legend called Jesus, oh, who's yeah. also who's also a paedophile. Um, and he's dressed in this really bizarre purple skin tight yeah. suit as he bowls to the Gypsy Kings version of Hotel California. And it's just a, almost a cameo, but it is one of the best things in the movie. The thing is, as you're talking about it, I'm smiling and I feel like watching it. But we have to get through three more minutes of this interview. Do you know the one thing I'll say about it, right? And this well, is all about yours. I am, um, bear with me for a second, in no way a nervous flyer. But I was flying back from New York. We were over the Atlantic and there was horrific turbulence. Yeah. I mean, to the point that people were actually screaming. Now, everything was completely fine, but it was white knuckle stuff and i put on the big lebowski to ease me to calm me and that's that's the greatest thing i can say about it you know absolutely so listen thank you for that uh and it is it is a joy to hear you even talk about it. as i say I, I feel like watching it listen as i butchered the intro to you there everyone knows you as you know a consumer journalist price watching the irish times radio tv all sorts of things i was thinking before i was talking to you have is it the chicken or the egg have we gotten more concerned about consumer rights or is it just because we have more stuff now like would you have not been working at what you were working at in our parents generation because you went to one or two shops a week whereas now you know amazon prime day you know we have everything or 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 is it a bit more involved than that do you think well i mean i i kind of fell into the, the role for a start because i mean my background was i was working as the deputy editor of the irish times website i have mm. a degree in english and philosophy a bad degree by the way in from uh, nuig so it's not like I had any business background or interest in personal finance. So I very much fell into it, but I fell into it at exactly the right time because it was the early part of, of this century when people were starting to get really fed up with the prices they were being asked to pay for everything. And some of your listeners might remember the whole thing about Eddie Hobbs and his ripoff rip yes. Republic program. And people just felt they were voiceless and they felt that everywhere they turned, they were being screwed. They were being screwed by the banks. They were being screwed by the restaurants. They were being screwed by the pubs and the supermarkets. And in the early part of this century, like Ireland became known as Treasure Island for the big retailers mm. who were based in the UK because they were just making so much money from us. So people felt voiceless and they felt disempowered. And what we did in the Irish Times was we said to, we just said hey you know to quote from another movie from the 1970s i we're as mad as hell and we're not going to take it anymore and, and we we just started giving people that voice and it just snowballed from there because you know people felt finally there's somewhere we can go if we feel like we're being ripped off or, or if we feel like we've been let down. And the reality is that no matter how many times we highlight complaints or, or concerns that readers have about any kind of business they still keep on coming because it seems that to, it seems to me that businesses factor in a degree of customer dissatisfaction and they prefer to spend their money on acquiring new business than on looking after their existing customers, which is perhaps what they should be doing. And maybe what they were doing in your parents and my parents' generation, when, as you say, there wasn't all that much choice. Yeah. It was just, you know, you, there was a couple of supermarkets you went to and you didn't ha and people didn't have a lot of different choices when it came to spending their money nor did they have a lot of money either yeah yeah well that's a very good point and listen you might be asked this a lot so forgive me but i was thinking in a way you're a bit like a restaurant critic you know i notice you have a hundred thousand followers on twitter so you know people by and large know who you are are you kind of a suspicious character now when you go in <laughs> and like someone recognize you and you're buying something and you're partaking of a service do they suddenly go oh shit it's connor pope 
John, I shouldn't tell you this, but I am absolutely useless when it comes to complaining on my own behalf. I just get so mortified by the whole thing. And literally a waiter could come up and spit in my soup in front of me and then say, was everything OK, sir? And I go, yeah, it was grand. Thanks very much. I just hate it. But I actually don't mind it at all when it comes to complaining on behalf of other people. So do people, my, my kids always find it funny when people say, God, you know, when people come up to me and say, God, you know, you look awful like Connor Pope. They just think it's the funniest thing. Uh, and my brother thinks it's very funny that that the people who tend to recognize me the most are ladies of a particular age. <laughs> and uh, he, th- he thinks it's really funny because he, like, he would be a member of uh, he, he, like, he would be a member of the Church of Ireland in, in, in Galway. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I'd often go, I'd go to their events to support them. And all these older women are, are you know, they, 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 they'd be more familiar with who I am than, let's say, anybody under the age of 65. And he thinks yeah. that's really, he really gets a kick out of that. He just thinks that. He thinks it's absurd. Very good. Well, he is Connor Pope. He's a hit with the aging Cougars. His favourite movie <laughs> is The Big Lebowski. You can read him in the Irish Times at Pricewatch. You can hear him on the radio and RTE, sometimes on News Talk, also on uh, Virgin Media One on the six o'clock show. Connor Pope, really enjoyed chatting to you. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot, John. Take care. I just want to understand this, sir. Every time a rug is mitterated upon in this fair city, I have to compensate the person? Come on, man. I'm not trying to scam anybody here. Uh, you know, I, I'm just... Uh... You're just looking for a handout like every other... Are you employed, Mr. Lebowski? Well, wait, wait let, me, let me explain something to you. Um, I am not Mr. Lebowski. You're Mr. Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino, if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Uh, Are you employed, sir? Employed? <laughs> you don't go out looking for a job dressed like that, do you? On a weekday? Is this a... What day is this? The delightfully laconic... Jeff Bridges there from The Big Lebowski as chosen by Connor Pope as his favourite movie. And my thanks to the always entertaining Connor Pope and the always insightful Connor Pope. Two adjectives is enough to describe him. It'd just get a bit sycophantic if I gave him a third one. Uh, Regular listeners will have heard that clip before. I have played that before from The Big Lebowski. But it's one, it's a great clip and it just, you know, makes me smile every time what day is it but also there is a huge amount of cursing in the big lebowski it's hard to actually get other clips that wouldn't have me beeping the sh1t out of them so uh we played that one again but i don't think anyone's complaining that is it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. Just to remind you, this show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app. And it's on the radio every Saturday at 6pm here on Newstalk. And you can listen back to any previous episode of Screen Time on the News Talk app. You can listen to interviews I've done this year alone with the likes of Benedict Cumberbatch or Forrest Whitaker or... Glenn Close. There's all sorts of people up there. So, uh, you know, if you want to check some of them out, please do. Or anything I do across the station, it's all up there on the News Talk app. This week I was talking to Pat Kenny on our series Boxed about the great Robbie Cole train series, Cracker. So there's something you might want to listen to. I think it's only 10 minutes long and who couldn't spare 10 minutes to hear about some great TV? And if you want to get in touch with me at any stage during the week about Cracker or anything else, you can tweet me, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. I will bid you all a fond and happy weekend and talk to you all next week.